Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of the Language of Mindfulness podcast. I'm your host, Mindfulness Coach Brett Hill. So I'm really excited to welcome to the show Dan Houston, who is an instructor and author. Um, and let me just read you a little bit about his background and you'll understand why I'm so excited to have him. Professor Houston teaches mindful communication and writing in the English department at NHTI Concord Community College. He's been incorporating mindfulness, meditation, and emotional intelligence in his communication curriculum for over 20 years and was awarded NHTI's 2008 Chancellor's Award for Teaching Excellence. Houston is the author of the textbook, Communicating Mindfully, Mindfulness-Based Communications and Emotional Intelligence, which I might add, I have read and I strongly recommend to any of you educators out there who are interested in a college-level textbook on mindfulness communications with a communications focus. It's unique in that way. And you'll find some great stuff on speech and you'll find some good stuff on communications, but Strictly, or not strictly, but with a, a main focus on communications and mindfulness, this is this stands out. His Communicating Mindfully course is required of students in several degree programs in NHGI and strongly recommended for others. The course also doubles as a form of professional development for faculty and serves as a foundation for the Mindful Communication Certificate. I was really excited when I discovered Dan was out there because he, um, when I started the language of mindfulness and decided I was going to, you know, make this a thing or try to as best I can, I was really looking for colleagues like who out there, who is also out there who's working specifically in the field of mindful communications. And it's a, uh, not that many folk. And so whenever you start to look around, you will discover this book, Communicating Mindfully. And that's how I ran across it. And so I tracked him down and we had a talk earlier and it was great. So I'd like to welcome Dan to the show and say thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for the endorsement of the book. I appreciate that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's a, you know, it's a full-blown college text. You know, it's like you go out and you start looking for mindfulness books and you find a lot. Um, this is very different in the sense it's really structured around students who want to go from, you know, a standing start to being more mindful and conscious in their communications. Would you, Am I characterizing this right, would you say? Yes, yes, I would. Absolutely. Especially uh, when I first started to, to teach that course, uh, as you mentioned in your intro a little over 20 years ago, um, most of the students, well, at that time, all of the students who were taking my course didn't know mindfulness was going to be a piece of it. And that's still true today. Uh, some people will know, uh, but a lot of students don't. So it needs to introduce them to it slowly. Yeah, exactly. So tell us a bit about how you got involved with this. Like, well, how did mindfulness show up in your life and then it get evolved into uh, evolved somehow uh, to where you're actually teaching this at a college level? Yeah, well, it started with my personal life. Uh, my first marriage ended in a divorce. And during that struggle, um, I was seeing a therapist who recommended a book to me that combined mindfulness with relationships. Mm -hmm. And it really helped me to navigate the difficulties I was experiencing, but it also woke me up to the beauty that surrounded me. So wait, whoa, whoa, hold. So what you're saying though, is that you, you, you started off with a practical problem. I mean, I'm calling it practical, but a real world relationship issue that 
was important to you that, and you were I'm struggling, I'm imagining, and that's why you sought out a therapist. By the way, I can raise my hand and say, that's exactly the same thing that got me into mindfulness, except for it wasn't in a marriage. It was a heartbreak. I had a traumatic heartbreak and I lost my job. I was a train wreck. And I literally woke up one day and said, I need professional help. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I wound up going to a somatic uh, therapist who was trained in mindfulness somatic therapy. And again, this is similar as back in the day, like, you know, 20 years ago or more. And, um, and, th and that's how I got, I'm not thought, Oh my God, what the heck is this? This is crazy, powerful, cool stuff. And I wanted to know everything about it. Yeah. Anyway, this isn't about me in this case. I want to come back to your story and, um, and say, you so you started to work with mindfulness and it not only helped you with the relationship but it opened you up it sounds like to a richness of life that it sounded like you weren't expecting you just kind of just you, but are happy that you did find yeah i definitely was not expecting it uh so like you i didn't even remember this at the moment but i also had lost my job at the same time oh yeah i was an adjunct professor so the courses that you're scheduled to teach aren't necessarily guaranteed to run mm -hmm. and you're just cut. And so that was happening at the same time. So I had a lot of free time, mm -hmm. um, but my, I was separated and uh, so living alone and not knowing what my future would entail in a lot of ways. Wow. Yeah. But uh, so this book basically taught me to open fully to the moments and what I was experiencing in them. Mm -hmm. And that included opening to some difficult emotions, uh, yes. fear. Um, but it taught me how to be with those emotions without perpetuating them. And also then to be in moments when I wasn't experiencing those things. And then I could ask myself, well, what do I want in this moment? You know, or what's available to me in this moment? And so learning mindfulness helped open you up to basically the, the, the reality of your not only pleasant but unpleasant experiences and helped you kind of be with them in a way where you didn't have to just hang out with just the unpleasant ones. You didn't have to keep the continuity button rolling on that. Am I making that up or is that kind of embedded in what you were saying? No, that makes sense. I think often when we encounter things like fear and grief, we also then think about what's causing those emotions to happen. And when we think about that, the initial cause, then we recreate those emotions mm -hmm. and perpetuating mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. It's because you're kind of like you're neurologically, you're just remembering the tragedy or the pain and the suffering in the present moment. Like maybe you're just looking out the window and looking at a tree, but really in your head, you're remembering some past pain. And so suddenly you're borrowing from the past onto what could be a completely pain-free moment that you're having yeah. right now. I see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a big deal to experience that and to learn that you might have some authority over that moment. Is Yeah, it's a huge deal. And I think it also helps to gain clarity over what you are feeling and what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And then if we're able to articulate that, if need be, or if we want to, with others, mm -hmm. the quality of communication. That right. And that's the whole thing right there. It's like, and I, I think in my, uh, in my material, I, I'm always saying when you're mindful, when engaged with someone, it changes the conversation. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm very interested in 
those changes and how, and might also make a, a wild claim, which is, uh, and it cha- those changes are better, that it makes things better. Um, so I, let, let's put a bookmark on that because I want to come back to that from an academic point of view. Sure. Um, but I do want to keep hearing your story. So you, you opened up to the world, you've had this, you were in this space in your, in your life where you didn't know what you were going to do and you didn't have a job and, um, your relationship was ending or over and you're, you're waking up to the, the reality of this bigger you, this bigger moment. So how did that then lead to where you are in being able to like, does it, when you decide I'm going to write a book, a textbook and teach it? Yeah. Well, all of what we've been talking about so far was happening uh, right around the time that I was just beginning to teach communication. Mm -hmm. Up until then, I'd been teaching strictly writing courses. Okay. So you were, what's your degree? You have an English degree then? Uh, At that time, I had a a bachelor's degree in humanities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, I've gone on to have a, to earn a master's in teaching English. I see. Okay, great. Yeah. And so around that time, I started to teach communication and I taught about a semester in the standard format without mindfulness. But uh, then I started to wonder, would my students be open to mindfulness if I introduced it to them? And if they were open to it, would they benefit in some of the ways that I had? Uh, And would their communication uh, improve as a result? So I tried just a little bit with them initially. And uh, to their credit, they were open-minded enough to give it a shot, and they they benefited. So that's what started it all. Oh, wow. So so you just started by slipping in some mindfulness into your normal communications class. Exactly, yeah. And that worked out? And so you just kind of, what happened after that? Like, they, they liked it to your surprise? Is that, is that what I heard? Well, what surprised me was that they were open to it at all. Oh, I see. Uh, again, it was over 20 years ago before uh, my, mindfulness was a big uh, uh, mainstream. mainstream right. Work. Right. Because back when I started to get interested in mindfulness, nobody had ever heard of it. It was like, a, what? What is this? It was very woo-woo, right? And now there's a yeah, bunch yeah. of science around it. Yeah. So, okay. So still, though, you're a long way from having written a book at this stage. Yeah, those were the initial stages. So because they were open to it and benefited from it, That encouraged me to every semester add a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And that included then writing some explanations uh, of what I was doing, which were in the form of handouts. And around that time, the publishers were starting to let you design your own books in the sense that you could say, I want chapters one, five, nine, and 12. Um, but I don't need all the other ones. And then some uh, publishers would let you actually then slip in your own writing within those chapters. So I sort of unintentionally was designing my textbook as I was creating that custom publication. Oh, I see. So this basically just evolved like a chapter at a time or a lesson and plan at a time over a period of how long, like um, years and years? Yeah, several years. I would say that process happened over about five years. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's and a- then, then the so, students. Sorry. Me, no, no. I was just going to say that's a lot of refinement as you go along too. So a lot of maturity gets built into the materials as a result. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was a great writing process, actually, because as you say, I um, could, as I deepened my own knowledge, I could add it. But I also saw how what I was writing was impacting my students and I could revise accordingly. And so how how did that go? Like, how do you feel like it was impacting your students? Oh, boy, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, wonderfully. <laughs> <laughs> um we could talk about that probably for quite a while, but um, I mean, semester after semester, students say that they are better students, they're more focused, they're more engaged in their classes, their relationships with their loved ones, with their significant others, with their co-workers improve. Um, they remember hobbies that they used to have that they haven't done in a while and they pick them up again. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. Wow. So lots and lots of non-academic sort of uh, focused values in terms of quality of life improvements, basically helping people have better lives all around, sounds like. Yeah, in a big way. <clears throat> that's it's great. The academic, though. I don't want to say it's only the uh, personal life that improves. No, and, and, right, exactly. I mean, because when you uh, sometimes I'll I'll say you've heard the phrase I'm sure you know that uh, rising tides lift all boats, right? So it's mm-hmm. kind of like I feel like mindfulness is that as well, and that when you just put a a little bit of effort into mindfulness, it improves. And this is what happened to you and to me as well. You 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 improve not only the thing that brought you to it, but it improves su- surprisingly everything else about your life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so from there, you, so you've got this book now and um, this textbook and suddenly it becomes a required class in the curriculum for, for, for what was it for IT? Is that right? Yeah. For three departments now, uh, information technology, human services and addiction counseling. And which requires a mindfulness communications class to get a certificate in IT that just blows my mind in a great way. <laughs> I'm an IT guy. I have a background in IT. I was a technical evangelist for Microsoft and um, principal technical marketing engineer for a company called Riverbed, deeply technical networking company. And uh, so I can, you know, I can talk tech and I can tell you um, mindfulness is massively missing from a lot of the technical conversations that would benefit not only those companies, but Mm -hmm. the individuals within them and their customers. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I was ecstatic to hear from you that this was a required class and it's required. It's kind of like, so tell me about, do you have the situation where people just show up to go, Oh, you know, I'm just taking this because it's required to get my Cisco certification. And and then do, do they experience like, do you, are they just like, you know, phoning it in or do you have people actually come come around later and go, oh, my God, this was way more than I expected? Mm. Uh, well, first of all, it wasn't a, um, suddenly that it became a required course. Ah. Uh, I'll shift back to that uh, first. The, um, the way that evolved was that teachers started to notice a difference in the students who had taken my course and those who hadn't. Oh, wow. So you were getting feedback from the teachers and the the teachers are going, the students that are coming out of your classes are different somehow than the other students. What were they saying about them? 
um, different in the way they engaged in the class, more respectful of others, more likely to um, share uh, share their thoughts and ideas. Wow, fascinating. And also with their writing, uh, more engaged, in not just doing it because it's an assignment, but actually probing what they're uh, writing about. So you mean they're actually being more more inquisitive and curious and engaged? Yeah. Yeah, wow. that's unexpected. That's that's amazing. And so yeah, teachers are, 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 are internally they're like teachers lounge where they're saying, yeah, "Have you seen? Notice these these students coming out of dance class. They're like awesome, or or these big changes." And so this gets back to you, and then what happens? Yeah, so I had a lot of those kinds of uh, conversations in the hallway or the in line at the photocopier or what mm-hmm. have you. And then I I realized I couldn't really tell them much about what I was doing in those five minutes. Uh-huh. Right. Right. So I offered a condensed version of my course as professional development for faculty. Oh, I see. Because the only way they're going to get it is to experience it. Yeah, exactly. So it was an eight-session uh, course. We met once a week, and it was open to anybody from any department. Mm-hmm. So for several years, I ran that one each semester and got uh, teachers from all kinds of departments, early childhood education, nursing, um, information technology, human services, dental hygiene. And uh, was great because stu- uh, students, I call them now, but teachers, the teachers mm-hmm. who would take these, they, their lives benefited. So they became advocates uh, to their students. And that's what that increased the demand because suddenly there were 10 sections running it every semester and I couldn't teach 10 sections. Oh, wow. So I had to train people to teach the course. I see. Wow. So suddenly this is a in-demand class because it's being sponsored effectively, evangelized by your other teachers who've enjoyed your the training so much that they, they got it. Yeah. Um, and it was a really great way for it to evolve because it wasn't me trying to convince people that this is a good idea. <laughs> It was really just more and more people getting the bug and being like, oh, this is good stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like about it so much is it's direct experience. It's not an abstract notion. It's like this is, you know, they've had the experience and they're, they're, you know, recommending it from that point of view, which really makes a big, big difference. Yeah, huge. huge. That's, that's fabulous. So how long has this been going on there now? Well, um, I, again, I began my work about 21, 22 years ago now. Uh, I would say that it was about three or four years in that I started to offer the professional development for faculty. And then what we were just talking about happened, and I trained people to teach that course, and more sections ran. Uh, but one thing we haven't discussed yet is that once more sections were running, I continued to meet with faculty who wanted to, and we talked about, well, it it just ended up influencing curriculum development in other courses. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we were getting students who, when they finished the Communicating Mindfully course, the course I developed, they would say, wow, this is great. You know, my life has changed in all these ways. Is there another course I could take here that that does this stuff. And mm-hmm. we'd always just say, no, you know, there isn't. Yeah. But 
we over time we developed uh, we developed some, and then those courses are now our mindful communication certificate. So, what do you think is next? Is there going to be like a mindfulness degree? I mean, if you look around, you try to find is there a degree of is bachelors of mindfulness and communicate? You know, there are actually a couple around the world, but there there's not much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I teach at a two year community college mm-hmm. and. There's, I don't see um, a demand for a standalone mindful communication certificate at this point. Mm-hmm. Although one of the things that we're doing is we have a business training center on campus. Mm-hmm. And there's increased interest uh, now more than ever in promoting the work that I've been doing to uh, businesses. And so beginning in January, actually, we have, uh, well, the first official launch uh, is in January, although I'm already doing a micro-credential I see. Uh, in mindful communication. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Well, congratulations on that new program then. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this is amazing. So let me ask you then, just backing up a little bit now to like the the overall changes we mentioned earlier in the in the conversation about what do you think changes in a conversation when you bring in um, when you bring mindfulness in, into in your, what 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 dynamics do you think are different um, in a mindful conversation versus you know somebody just being on automatic? Mm. That's a very interesting question. Uh, I think people are more likely to listen better. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to what people are actually trying to express without. So, you know, so often we're thinking about what we're going to say next or even what that person's going to say next. So they start talking and we predict where we think they're going and then we tune them out. Yes. Yes. I believe that's true. Yeah. And I think that happens less often with someone who's uh, studied mindfulness or they notice when they're beginning to plan their response at the expense of listening to what someone's saying. And then they can refocus. And so what you're suggesting is that with some training, you can become aware of um, your own inner dialogue about what am I planning to say next? Or where's my attention? Is it on the other person? Or is it on my own thought stream about what I need to be thinking about what I'm going to say or what they're going to anticipating the future in effect versus being present with what's actually being said? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's massive, a massive difference. I know in my own work, I uh, sometimes uh, do work uh, in the ventures into the intuitive realm and, and, and being really present with what somebody is saying in a big way is such a huge difference. I mean, you were talking about earlier about how your experience in the moment opened up to where you're having this big experience of now and the beauty of what's around you. And in my experience, when that uh, quality of presence involves another person, there's a whole bunch of information that that person is sending to you, both consciously and unconsciously, that you can perceive and be engaged with that you simply don't notice otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to give you a, a workplace example, um, from that internship course we were just discussing, 
one of the students was doing customer service in, in the IT field. And he got a call from someone who was just completely frustrated, right? So as help desk calls often happen, yeah, right, happen to be. And what he, one of the things he realized was that, so this person was having a hard, hard time logging on to whatever system he was trying to log on to. But that wasn't the root of his frustration. The frustration had, was mainly coming from how many people he had already spoken with to try to resolve this problem. Yeah, I've been that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. So being passed along, put on hold, passed along. And um, so he recognized that and turned off his sort of automatic customer service tone and connected with them as a human being and said, you know, I'm here. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. And at one point he, he realized, OK, what's needed here is to connect them, this person with my partner company which I'm te technically not supposed to do unless the customer insists on it mm -hmm. uh, to do a conference call in that way. But he basically said to himself, although the customer hasn't like actually word for word made this request, he basically has made this request. Right, exactly. Just in, in the emotional require the requirement here, the conditions necessary to satisfy a positive outcome on this call are that that is necessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that. That's and so important. Just like, okay, I just want to hear you in your angst and respond to your your limbic state system to use a neurological term, mm -hmm. um, your, your your limbic state of agitation. Because if you don't deal with that, you're not going to have a happy customer in the end. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. so true. So true. And I I uh, it's it's amazing how much it matters to people that you notice their emotions. Yeah, yeah. It's really very simple. And that's something I learned in um, when I was being trained as a therapist in the somatic psychology as I was mentioning earlier. Just noticing, in fact, there's a whole series of trainings about noticing limbic state changes, they call them. So you're talking to a client or a customer in this case, and they, they move from like being normal to excited or unhappy and just noticing that in your head and going, oh, whatever just happened, move them from one state to another and paying attention to that mm. really makes a difference on what you say next. Yeah, yeah. It really is a huge deal. Yeah, and I think people who are trained in mindfulness are more likely to notice those kinds of shifts also, well, whether, exactly. they've, whether exactly. they've been trained exactly to do, to do so. Well, precisely. I mean, because you're being present, Mindfulness to me is a prerequisite in a way for that, because otherwise you're just, you know, you're just mechanically going through it. But if I'm really paying attention, I notice, oh, yeah, they're like tearing up or they're getting angry or happy. And, and, and one of the exercises in, in that I do with my coaching is noticing what lights you up. And then you practice that for a while and then notice what light when other people light up. Mm. And then uh, because that's a super simple thing to do. And it's. Mm always genuinely positive and it's uncomplicated mm -hmm. and it's one of those moments that, that just sort of begs for you to be mindful with it yeah nice. And, and by being intentional about it by saying oh i'm noticing i'm lighting up and then the, the, the second instruction is hang out with that experience for just a few extra moments mm. 
So you notice that you're lighting up because you see something you like, like a puppy or a child's face, or you hear a song or you see a beautiful sunset and you go, oh, and I'm lighting up. And then you just relax and breathe into the yumminess of that for just a moment or two. You don't try to make it a big deal. As a mindfulness practice that isn't um, meditation based, yeah, that can add nice little moments to your life. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I give a, an exercise. Uh, it's, actually, it's an ongoing assignment that um, I think from time to time has a similar effect. So the assignment is basically to remind yourself often that the moment you're in has never existed before mm-hmm. and will never exist again. Mm, beautiful. And see if you end up noticing things that you otherwise wouldn't have. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot because it's sort of like the the ongoing newness of now, so to speak, right? Like yeah. Every, every moment is a new moment and and you can get, you know, you can get real kind of go metaphysical on like the Eckhart Tolle stuff. It's like the, the moment is basically rebirthing itself every moment. And it's like, wow. And there's a lot of wow in that, but it can just be so simple as that guy is a beautiful color, you know? Right, right, right. It'd be really simple. Yeah. So one of the first things that my students uh, notice are, are the, is the beauty that's around them. Mm-hmm. And so we talk uh, initially often about gratitude. Mm-hmm. And the things that they didn't realize that they are really grateful for, you know. Well, that's you said an interesting thing. It's like they didn't realize that they're grateful for it. So it's almost like you're saying that by becoming more mindful in their lives, they wake up to their their kind of un, unexpressed or unacknowledged gratefulness. Absolutely. Yeah, that's. I mean, what a gift that is. That's sort of like I've got a collection of jewels and I don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a gift for sure. Yeah. I, I think mindfulness and gratefulness have a beautiful reciprocal relationship and that mm. mindfulness can can nurture gratefulness in the way we were just discussing. But the act of then being grateful, I think, helps us to be more present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love that. There's a lot to be said for hanging out in, a, in another training I, I took um with a John Eisman who created the recreation of the self uh, psychotherapy in Portland, he would call that um, hanging out with the absolutes, uh, mm. gratefulness. And the other ones were like beauty, you know, truth, justice, peace mm. in a way being with any of these absolutes takes you to the moment because mm-hmm. there's, there's so much bigger than us. Right. I mean, justice is way bigger than me or you, you know, beauty is way bigger than me or you. So it's sort of like landing in beauty, landing in truth, landing in justice, landing in gratefulness seems to have some way of bringing us into now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's part of the practice for sure. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you forever. Um, I just wanted to say, is there, is there anything else you would say to people who are interested in mindfulness uh, in terms of like how, how someone could get started, how someone could approach mindfulness um, in a, to, to be a, be a part of their lives? Hmm. Well, I could shamelessly promote our program. Yes, you could. <laughs> this would be a good opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, it, and I don't want to lose your question entirely, but it does. One of the things that just popped in my mind is um, that often students don't know what they're getting into when they take mm-hmm. these courses. And in some cases, as you mentioned, they're required. 
And so one big comment we get at the end of the semester is that someone will say, well, at first I thought this was just a bunch of hogwash. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the heck? Why is this? Why am I being made to take this? But uh, my life has changed in so many positive ways. And thank goodness that this has been introduced to me. You know, that's probably the number one comment we get. Mm, Like it was so much more than I expected. Yeah. Well, yeah, they expected it to be horrible. (laughs) (laughs) So the bar is pretty low. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But instead, I mean, then it gets pretty high. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I do think that our courses even are good introductions for people who do know what they're getting into, because Mm -hmm. clearly it works as a means of introducing people to Mm -hmm. mindfulness. Mm well, even some of the exercises that we talked about now, people who listen to this podcast could remind themselves that the moment they're in has never existed before or will never exist again, right? Yeah, that that's could, a great practice. Could be an in. Um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, you're, you may be familiar with, uh, yes, founded yes. by John Kabat-Zinn at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass Med School that's offered at hospitals all over the world at this point as uh, a great great introduction. And there are lots of great books out there. Uh, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, uh, lots of ways to, to dip lots your toe of ways in. To get well, thank you so much, Dan. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about your work and how you've been involved with uh, mindfulness and where this is going. And I really am very grateful to the work that you're doing to open people to a bigger world and to a greater experience of themselves. And um, I, I, you know, I'm, it's my mission in a way to kind of like further that any way that I can, because I, I, I believe we're aligned in a way in the sense that mindfulness is a path to not only improving people's lives, but improving the world. And I appreciate your, your contribution to that, and which is substantial. Uh, what's the name of your Thank book you. and how Thank can you. people find it if they're so, so inclined? The name of the book is Communicating Mindfully, uh, Mindfulness-Based Communication and Emotional Intelligence. And it's published by August Learning. Uh, so if you do... Uh, web search for August learning and communicating mindfully, you'll come to the site. Okay, great. Well, thank you once again and um, have a beautiful rest of your life. (laughs) And I hope we chat Uh, soon. (laughs) I hope so too. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. So that's a wrap on today's edition of the Language of Mindfulness podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please leave us a review on iTunes and follow along on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. We'd really appreciate it. And check us out at languageofmindfulness.com where you can sign up for a free coaching session or download our PDF on eight ways to be more mindful in a virtual meeting at languageofmindfulness.com slash eight, number eight ways. Thanks a ton, and we're looking forward to a lot of great new content coming up as well. Have a great one, and stay present.